So the intersection between mental health and health, I think, should be erased, honestly. I had a colleague who said, David, why is there a Department of Health and a Department of Mental Health in most states? It should all be Department of Health because it really does impact each other. And I think we're starting to see those walls get torn down a little bit for the good of humans. Welcome to the Redox Podcast, where we explore the intersection of healthcare and technology with some of our industry's most notable contributors. I'm your host, Nico Skibaski. In my day job, I'm the co-founder and president of Redox, where we're on a mission to enable the frictionless adoption of technology in healthcare. We started the show to share what we're learning and hopefully allow you to skip some steps as you embark on your journey through making healthcare a little bit better. So without further ado, I welcome you to the Redox Podcast. Today on the show, we have Dr. David Elkin. He is a pediatric clinical psychologist and founder and executive director of the Center for Advancement of Youth at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. The center is a multidisciplinary approach to coordinated care for children with behavioral or developmental issues throughout Mississippi. I've got to say that I really, really enjoyed this conversation. We actually just jumped right into our conversation and skipped much of the pleasantries that I usually start the show with, you know, things like welcoming him to the show and having him give some background. So I wanted to just take a second now to give you some context and then throw you into that conversation. David and I had both watched the recent Netflix documentary called Social Dilemma. In short, it paints a very scary picture of what big tech companies are doing with all of the data they collect and its influence on everything from what you buy to your politics to really what's going on in mental health today. We spent a good portion of this conversation discussing the healthcare implications and trade-offs between using big data techniques with some of our most personal information, along with going deeper on applicable trends in the pediatric mental health space. Okay, let's jump right in. The, the thing that sticks with me is that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. Yeah. Little things like my mom will say things like, well, I just don't like you know, you know them knowing all my business. And I said, well, mom, you've kind of consented to that when you you know gave them access to your phone and your credit card. I mean, for convenience, you've given them access. So you can go back to paying cash for everything or not, you know? Yeah. I think about services like Google Maps just an amazing service, right? And it's it's free, <laughs> and, and that blows my mind. But because of that, they know where I am at all times and like where I'm hanging out and what I'm researching. You know, which restaurants I want to go to, and all of that is is information to serve me better ads. And is that is that terrible? I don't know. Like before I before I saw social dilemma, I was like. Maybe it's not so bad because if they know me so well and they give me ads about things I don't know about, maybe I should be, you know, going to that restaurant or buying that bike thing that I get ads for all the time, right? But it is just a very interesting way of thinking about the world, and it kind of breaks down free market capitalism in a lot of ways because it's it's sort of a, a derived form of a market rather than a direct market. It's very interesting, and there I've read several articles as well in the Atlantic Monthly. The Atlantic is my Sunday afternoon sort of like, you know, mm. vice, I guess. But there have been interesting articles on that very thing that, you know, it's really different free market now because you're not making, you really aren't making a choice. You're being pushed to a choice. It's, it's very different than what's been going on. Yeah. One of the fundamentals of a free market is that you have complete information. As a consumer, you understand the benefit you're going to get from a product. You're able to evaluate the purchase decision based on that perceived benefit. And what advertising does and sort of the bubble that you live in, the, the bubble of advertising and content that you see, it can overly influence that perception in a way where, gosh, I think the, the most compelling 
part of, of social dilemmas, just, you know, talking about how it goes beyond buying things into what we believe as society and how that is tearing society apart, potentially, especially with a lot of the divisiveness that we've seen over 2020. It's true. And you raised some interesting points, too. Since our last conversation, a series of events have occurred and talking to my daughters about social dilemma, hmm. it's making me rethink kind of a lot of things that we're pushing here at uh, our center, you know, things like, can we digitize human behavior? Can we make the referral and screening process, you know, operate on principles of AI? Can we, all these things that we're sort of trying to push. Yeah. And you go, well, yeah, it makes sense. That's, that's good, right? And then you pull back and go, well, maybe it isn't. I don't know. It, it sort of forced a, a social justice perspective on all this. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd love to dive deeper on that because they're using AI. They're using a ton of data. They're using AI to sift through that data and figure out how people think and what preferences people have. And if you think about using that for good, potentially, right, when you're treating patients, if you knew what was going on in, in your patient's minds at a digital level, then you could probably intervene in different ways. Is that kind of how you guys were thinking about it and what you're starting to question now? Yeah, very much so, because we need to deliver services to people in a more streamlined way and in a more targeted way. AI helps with that. Technology helps with that. But the question is, what's the trade-off, right? So, and that's the question you're raising is, is there a trade-off in terms of other entities looking at the big data? For instance, we worked with this company here in town to develop, I think I mentioned to you, a screening and triage algorithm to assist our schedulers. And He's a good guy. You know, his backstory is his actually his stepfather is a guy named um, Jim Barksdale, who's one of the co-founders of Netscape. Remember Netscape? Uh, yeah, yeah. So he's very tech, you know, very into all this. And he said, we developed it for you based on your information. We'll let you have it. And as soon as he said that, I thought, no, if I'm not paying for a product, I am the product. So yeah, what's the catch? Yeah. <laughs> what was the catch? He basically said, we want feedback from you guys to sell this to other hospitals and clinics around the country. You're the pilot site. And I said, okay, so do we have the control over the data? And he sort of paused a little bit and said, yes, you do. But I, I didn't push it. I think the implication was they won't. So it's intriguing, you know? Algorithms and, and training AI is such an interesting space because you need a lot of data. You need an organization like yours to use it and give feedback to it. And the actual data itself, right? Like what patients are being seen at what times you're scheduling data is not actually valuable to them. What's valuable is how often something cancels and what are the characteristics of when someone's going to cancel or something needs to be rescheduled or, you know, provider capacity, because it's all of that metadata that they can take and apply and make their product better and bring that to other healthcare organizations. And there's always this kind of chicken or egg problem that we see with AI companies because they have an idea like this, but they can't really train their algorithms until they collaborate. So in some ways, I can certainly justify, yeah, give it to you for free, let you be the guinea pig, train the data up. You are kind of creating the product, but you should also benefit from it, right? Did you end up going forward with that or was that a barrier that prevented you from moving on it? It's funny you should ask because that was a text that I sent um, last night to him. <laughs> so it's very much in process. I don't know where it's going to go. It caused me to think about my appetite, if you will, my yeah. drive. Like I really want this because it really would save us money and time and really would smooth things out. But then you also go, but why do you want it? And by wanting it, what are you willing to give up? You know? Yeah. To continue down these lines, I think some of the scariest things beyond the divisiveness in our society and, you know, the potential downfall of society as we know it. The other scary parts of it was just how they talked about 
how social media and the rise of it is really affecting our youth. And they talked about some of the statistics on suicide and depression and anxiety. You've been in this space for a long time before social media was prevalent with youth. Have you tracked that in your own work and seen that come up? And do you think that we're in a crisis as they described? I agree with the fact that we're in a crisis 100%. It's a monumental shift in how kids interact. A monumental shift has taken place with social media and a monumental shift in how they access information about each other. Because kids are always comparing, you know, adults are as well, comparing themselves to others and trying to be in group or out of group or whatever. But we've seen an increase in anxiety and depression referrals, especially with COVID, but even before COVID, anxiety and depression. And we're very aware of the statistics out there. The age group with the most rapidly increasing suicide attempts is 10 to 14 year old girls. And, you know, you didn't used to see that really. It's just increasing exponentially. And you kind of go, okay, why is that? Well, there's probably lots of reasons that are out there. Thomas Joyner is a great psychologist down at Florida State, and he does study suicide from a variety of reasons. But there's probably lots of reasons, like you're comparing yourself and you're feeling left out. You know, I think that one of the things that's very interesting is when I was a kid, if two friends of mine had gotten together to go do something on Friday night, see a movie, and they didn't invite me, I didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. And that was okay. I just talked to them at school on Monday and they had done their own thing. But now uh, kids can see that they were left out. And so they have information, but it's almost information that's better not to know. You know? Yeah. More information is not better. And so, it's, yeah, it's, it's affecting the kids. I think under the guise of you can know more, but you know, it's actually good not to know a lot of stuff. <sighs> yeah, it's, it creates that FOMO because you know what you're missing out on. Friday night, you may have had dinner with a friend and it may have been a great time, but you were still missing out on going to the movies, right? <laughs> and so you're always missing out on something. And if you know every single thing you're missing out on, it can create that void. Absolutely. And it's uh, also, I think that's out there is there's more talk about suicide. You know, there's more access to suicide techniques. Suicide, in a sense, becomes almost normed, you know, yeah. to where you know, if you're a 13-year-old girl and you type in, you know, suicide, then there's like ways to do it. It's just scary that it's even you know being out there as an option. Well, this is an interesting thread because a lot of what I hear around behavioral and mental health is that we need to destigmatize it, right? We need to talk about it more and be more open with talking about challenges with depression or how you got through it, which makes a lot of sense for people who are struggling with it and needing to know that there's others out there. But you know, destigmatizing what you just talked about was destigmatizing suicide, which could be a terrible thing, right? There should be a stigma that comes with suicide. Is is probably what I'm trying to say. No, I think you're right. I think there's a difference between destigmatizing something and legitimizing it, or even promoting it. So I think it's a fine line. I, I don't have the answer on that, actually. It's a good question you ask. You know, how do you talk about something? Because we do need to talk about it without legitimizing it. Just because something is doesn't mean it should be. You know, reality cannot equal morality. You know, mm-hmm. the two are, are separate. So we have to be able to talk about things that are, but that shouldn't be. Yeah, we're we're down a rabbit hole now, aren't we? (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned that the pandemic has actually increased some of this. It's interesting because the pandemic, it's forced us to stay inside. And, you know, normally I'd be working at an office right now, but I'm sitting at my kitchen table. And if we think about the youth who's normally in school and socializing in the classrooms and eating lunch together and all that, they're sitting in front of Zoom now and, you know, probably have Zoom on their computer and social media on their phone to get through the day. It's almost like this big experiment that our society is taking on about like, what if we went the total extreme of 
social isolation except through technology. Do, do you think we're going to see like lasting effects of the the pandemic on mental health, especially in youth? Absolutely. I think the, the real question is, you know, what are those going to look like? So, you know, you know, you're in large settings and you see, I was in a meeting with a group of people socially distanced, but the couple in front of me had an infant, I think by about a year old. Mm-hmm. And the, the kid was looking over the shoulder of her father at me because I was standing behind him and she was kind of looking at me and I was smiling, but the child couldn't see it because I had my mask on. Yeah. And so the kid kept looking at me, I kept smiling and I realized she, she can't tell that I'm trying to interact with her. So I think it's very intriguing what's going to happen, and I don't know what it is. You know, is it having an effect on infants being unable to read adult faces? And I, th- I think that one of the things that's intriguing as well is having meetings with, you know, distance meetings like on Zoom or whatever, where you're not looking the person in the eye, you're, you're looking away from them. Now, I know in some cultures that's culturally appropriate. In some Native American uh, tribes, it's considered rude to stare someone in the face and in the eye. But... In general, we're always talking to someone by looking them in the eye. But if you notice when you're doing a Zoom call, you're never looking the person in the eye. It's kind of always adjusting. And I don't know what that does. You know, I don't know beyond the ability to connect. I think we we can connect and laugh with each other, but it's just that's not social connection, really. You know, there's something else going on that happens in person. So, so speaking of that, I imagine at your center, you're having to do a lot more over telehealth. Everyone is in healthcare right now. Are, are your providers finding that as effective? So, you know, the large answer is yes, it's extremely effective. You can you know, span distances, you know, you can reach people who are underserved because they can get to a public library if they don't have Wi-Fi in their home or whatever. So, you know, the initial answer is yes, it's great. The micro answer is, is more complicated, I think, because you miss out on a rich amount of information that you gather when you're sitting across from somebody in your office or in their home or whatever, because there's all those subtle things that go on that we as humans are very good at picking up on. Tapping a foot, um, sort of looking at your watch or doing other things you know, that you pick up on. And when you're on camera, you may not be able to pick up on all those things. Even if your camera has you know, tilt pan zoom, um, <laughs> you, don't, you don't pick up on those things. And honestly, the ability to pick up on all those things is what makes us uniquely human. And if you can't do that, then we typically have a diagnosis for that. It's called autism spectrum. So it you know, it, it works well for some kids and even adults. But I, th- I think as a provider, my colleagues and I have talked about this, it works at a gross macro level. It may not work as well at the micro level, and it may rob us of the richness of the data that's available. You know, you can cover a lot more ground as it were with telehealth and you know zoom kind of features mm-hmm. it, you may miss out on fine grain stuff yeah. and, and maybe we as a society say it's worth it because the the payoff is worth it to expand services to those who are underserved and, and definitely we have underserved populations here in mississippi so maybe we say that's okay it's worth it but i do think it's something we try we need to try to solve in the next few years yeah yeah and it sounds it sounds like it's going to be a mix right where, you know, when someone doesn't have access or they live in rural communities or they don't have means to get into the clinic, it's better than nothing for sure. I think you're right. And I, I think, honestly, you probably got your finger on the pulse better than I do. I mean, we're responding to innovations. As clinicians, we don't really create innovations. There are some things we can create, you know, companies that can do this or AI algorithms that can do that. But we're also responding to a lot of what things that are being created. 
which is actually an interesting sort of position to be in. Yeah, well, and to maybe back up a little bit, I'd love to talk about the Center for Advancement of Youth. You have kind of a unique model for delivering care. So if you could give us an overview of that, that'd be amazing. And then what I want to get to is how that has changed with the pandemic. So I don't think that it's anything that innovative, honestly. My MO has always been, if I've thought of something, I'm convinced that 100 people have already thought of it before me. <laughs> so I just uh, I distrust my innovative side. But at an academic health center, a medical school, historically, that's been a very you know closed off, walled, siloed kind of environment. This is historically, of course. So each department ran its business. Each department was its own entity. The chair of that department wielded tremendous amounts of power, much more power than a chair of a department at a university or a college, much more power. And so he or she sort of ran their fiefdom, if you will. And there was very little sort of cross-pollinization and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that started to change, honestly, in the 90s and the early aughts. And we here, following national trends, people have been doing it around the country and the world for a while, said, you know, there are psychologists over in the Department of Psychiatry, and there are psychologists in the Department of Pediatrics, and there are developmental behavioral pediatricians, and we share patients. Why are we not working together more closely? So my colleague and I, Susan Buttress, she's a developmental behavioral pediatrician, really met for coffee one time in 2011 and just said, you know, we share a lot of patients. Why are we not seeing patients together? And from that, she and I just started a clinic one day a week where we brought in referred patients where we both sat in and um, saw the patient together and developed a treatment plan. So you had a physician and a psychologist in the room with a, a parent, usually a mom and a child. And from that was just sort of born this concept of why don't we expand that? And so we have, over the years, uh, expanded that. We now have about 68 total employees here. This is small based on national standards. You can go to other universities and they're much bigger. But we brought in all outpatient pediatric developmental behavioral health specialists under one roof. So everything that the University of Mississippi Medical Center has is now housed here for outpatient care. So that means child psychiatry, That means child psychology, developmental behavioral pediatrics, nurse practitioners, occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, LCSWs, social workers, professional counselors, all. And it's all mashed up into one. And that really affected efficiencies uh, in a good way and allowed us to deliver care much more effectively, much more efficiently. And actually to to save Medicaid, the Medicaid Division of Medicaid in Mississippi, a significant amount of money. But it also is intriguing because now you've opened up a training opportunity. And so now you've got medical students rotating through and they're sitting in with me doing therapy. They're following physician psychiatry or pediatrics doing their thing. But we also make them sit in with a social worker or an occupational therapist or speech therapist. So there's a lot of sort of crossbreeding and we have trainees from those other specialties too, sitting in with other providers. So you've got this great big sort of, again, mashup. And it's really been intriguing to watch the ideas that come out of that. You know, once you put very smart people together from different specialties, they start having ideas. Yeah. Now, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And it, it's my job at this stage in my career to sort of say, well, I can make that happen. Let's do this. And you know, how do I clear a path ahead of people? I guess what I've been, and I'll be quiet after this, what I've been intrigued by is with, with a lot of people who are, who've been used to doing things in their silo, if you put them in contact with others, 
in a sense, what you're doing is you're pulling the weeds away from a flower and you pull the weeds away and they bloom and you start seeing things come out of it. And it's, that's been the most fun is efficiency has been cool and using technology has been cool, but watching human beings kind of just grow into this other self has been the most thrilling for me. Yeah, well, I would imagine from a patient perspective, having all of these things in one place and people collaborating, I, th I think that's like the number one frustration with, with healthcare for a patient is that, you know, you might be seeing many providers and they're not talking to each other. They're not working together, even though so much of what goes on in our, in our bodies and minds it, it interacts, right? So having a team think about all those different aspects because they come from all those different backgrounds and specialties seems so beneficial. I'm interested though, because you mentioned you saved a lot of money for, for Medicaid. I think last time you mentioned it was close to 200 million. W where did that savings come from? We had the distinct advantage about five years ago of being able to look at Medicaid's data. Some of the private insurers will not share the data with us, and that's mm -hmm. fine, but Medicaid did. And so a lot of that comes from redundancy. Most families, when they have any kind of concerns about their kids, they're not going to come see a psychologist or a psychiatrist first. They're going to go to their primary care provider, usually mm -hmm. a pediatrician. And then the pediatrician says, I think you need to go see a psychologist. And so they make the referral and time goes by. And then the psychologist says, well, I think you also need to be managed on medications. Let me get you in with a psychiatrist. And then time goes by and they're traveling and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Or what happens is a pediatrician or, or a provider will say, well, this is clearly ADHD, so here's medication. When in fact it was anxiety or it was a learning disability. And so you've got both ends of the spectrum, if you will, redundancy, but also, you know, failure to accurately diagnose and start on a treatment path that's expensive. So if you can, in a sense, take out some of those inefficiencies by having everybody on the same page under one roof, then you really sort of start to affect the system. We were able to do a deep dive into Medicaid's data and look at, say for ADHD, look at the number of kids on Medicaid being provided care by Medicaid per county. So there are 82 counties in Mississippi. And so we could look at how many kids in each county were diagnosed with ADHD or depression or anxiety, and then start looking at the usage of psychotherapy or medications. We were able to find, we were able to find the physician in Mississippi who prescribed the most stimulants for ADHD. And I won't say who that is, but uh, we, we know who he is. And then you start sort of, you can start playing with that. How do you deliver needed care? So in one county, let's say, all the kids with ADHD were only getting medications. It's very expensive. How do we couple that with behavior therapy? How do we deliver behavior therapy in that county for those kids? Once you start looking at the deep data, then you can adjust your care accordingly and make it more efficient. And what is your role at, at UMC in intervening in that? Because, you know, if it's a private PCP or, you know, pediatrician out in a town somewhere and they're doing this with their patients, is it through Medicaid because they're actually paying for it that you can come in and try to intervene with different care pathways or what gives you the right to, to butt in with that with that provider and their patient and, and provide off alternative methods that's a great question and basically we, we approached it less as butting in and more as being a partner so we're the only academic health center in the state other states have multiple you know systems like that so we have the ability to talk to those PCPs and say Hey, look, you know, can we can we partner with you on this? And most of them, honestly, will say we would love it because mm. behavioral problems are our number one referral. Number two is otitis media. You know, I mean, here in fact, so I mean, we need help with this, and we say well, we're here to help. And so rather than saying you're messing up, yeah, we would say you know we're here to help. Which sometimes in the deep south, you know, where the government we're here to help doesn't always go over very well. <laughs> 
but it helps to have a southern accent and to have credibility in a sense to be from here and say to the pediatricians you know we want to help you and partner with you on this um, because they're getting tons of referrals they're seeing you know 30 patients a day and so but we can help with that yeah yeah and you know mississippi is a, a pretty rural place so are you are you actually standing up clinics in these areas or sending people out there or are you using you know telehealth or, or how are you actually scaling that it's a great question so again with telehealth we're starting to do some forays out into these rural communities for instance to push it beyond just the individual therapy delivering care in schools i've got a colleague here and again this is one of the success stories he's a licensed professional counselor and he's in his mid-40s and he thought for the rest of his career he's just going to see patient after patient every day but he's had some ideas, and one of the ideas was to deliver behavior therapy in an elementary school in rural county of Mississippi because that rural county also housed Alcorn State University, which is a HBCU, and they have a training program for licensed professional counselors. What if we partner with that HBCU and get their students who need hours to go into the school so the kids get the therapy, the students get the training and the hours they need, and suddenly you're doing some workforce development. We've learned to partner and to have a position of humility, honestly, and say, we want to work with you and, and everybody wins here. Rather than uh, coming in as the 800 pound gorilla and say, we're going to take it all. If we can find a way to partner with folks like that across the state, then they see benefit. Again, I, I don't want to come across as saying that, you know, this is the most innovative thing. There are lots of people around the country that are doing this on large scale. But honestly, what, what sort of, tipped me a little bit was a lot of my colleagues are saying things like we should embed a psychologist in every pediatric clinic. Yeah. And that's sort of the, the standard mantra is, you know, you need to have integrated care. Well, that works well in large urban areas, you know, but you're not going to get a psychologist or a child psychiatrist to move into Rolling Fork, Mississippi. You know, mm-hmm. it's just, it's not going to happen because there's only 2000 people in an entire County. I mean, there's some churches in Jackson, Mississippi that are bigger. Um, <laughs> so you know, that, that, that concept of embedding behavioral health in uh, a PCP's office works in large urban areas, but not in rural areas. So how do you use technology and to overcome that? Can you do behavior therapy in the schools or in that pediatrician's office and work with the PCP in sort of an upstream way and use technology to make it all happen? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and, and actually, I, I think it'd be interesting to go down that route of just like, you know, a lot of the people listening to this show are interested from a technology perspective, you know, they're vendors who are trying to figure out, you know, better ways to serve their customers or that, you know, they work in IT at health systems. What, what yeah, what does your technology infrastructure look like? And I know UMC is, uses Epic as their, as their EHR, but how do you, how do you manage telehealth? Do you have any other interesting technologies that you utilize on a regular basis with patients or otherwise? Yeah, so telehealth is managed by the University of Mississippi Medical Center as well. We are one of the two centers of excellence in the United States, MUSE, Medical University of South Carolina, or South Carolina is the other state that has that designation. So it's ironic to me that the first two states to secede from the union are now <laughs> um, trying to come back in, in a way. <laughs> and Mississippi actually changed the flag, so that's good. That's a whole other issue. Um, yep, yep. Finally. But we're also, in terms of technology, we're creating algorithms that do screening and diagnosis in a timely manner. So previously, you know, we would have a psychologist or a social worker or someone like that sit down with a family and do, say, an hour-long interview. That's how you learn to do it in grad school, right? Yeah. But what if that can be sort of converted, if you will, 
to an algorithm that uses branching logic and skip logic and get that diagnosis in about six or seven minutes with 95% um, accuracy, validity and reliability. And that's what we've developed, actually. The company and some colleagues of mine have got that together, so we're using that. We're also working with a company out of the UK called SilverCloud and to develop some adolescent and kid-based platforms. They're on um, cell phones, smartphones for kids that they can sort of check in on their emotions or feelings. And if it gets to a certain point, then it'll ping um, a provider who will check in on them. And if it gets to a certain point beyond that, then we can get them into a clinic pre-emergently. So CyberCloud's got a, a really robust platform for adults and we're working with them to develop uh, a plat similar platform for adolescents and perhaps kids down the road. Um, yeah, and you mentioned that they, they work across the entire NHS in the UK, right? Exactly. And I've been told they have other uh, contracts here in the United States with Kaiser Permanente in California and mm. others. So they've been a really interesting company to work with. And I think that the, the space is really crowded. You know, there's a lot of companies out there wanting to do check-ins and how do you assess behavioral health and with telehealth too, sort of making it more remote patient monitoring, but also direct patient care. Those are the two things that we're trying to, I guess, solve or put together, if you will. And I don't have the smarts for that. <laughs> I'm intrigued by putting those two things together in a behavioral health way. For So we at Redox, we work with a lot of remote patient monitoring companies, but they are typically, you know, measuring something physical with the body, right? Like we, we work with Gluco, who who does continuous glucose monitoring. And, you know, we work with Fitbit, right, which measures like movement. How do you do remote patient monitoring in, in the behavioral health side? Is it is it questionnaires? Is it they have to actually interact with an application? They have to interact, yeah. And that's the, the knock against a lot of behavioral sciences is, well, it's all self-report. Yeah. And, and our response is, that's all we got. I mean, <laughs> until we get, I mean, 50 years of NIH funding has yet to produce a pathognomonic marker for anything in psychiatry. <laughs> you know, they're, they're getting there, perhaps. But you know, until you can draw blood and say that person really is depressed, then what do you do? And also, actually, you'd be surprised. You can design questionnaires in such a way that you really do get a sense of a person is faking good or faking bad. And honestly, most people really want to tell you what's going on with them. You know, that's the grand secret of psychology, right? I mean, I'm sitting there and they could be lying through their teeth to me. But honestly, when you start talking to people and you gain some trust, and it goes back to what you're saying earlier about, you know, technology is not the only answer. You've got to have some in-person stuff. But once the person sort of trusts you, they really do sort of reveal stuff. And so I think it's that initial hurdle. Every, the human being is being digitized, you know, from MRIs to blood panels and that kind of stuff. And so I'm kind of intrigued, can human behavior be digitized? Can you assess that reliably over time, even with self-report? I think we're in the early stages of that, honestly. It'll be intriguing to see what happens in the next 40 years. Yeah, yeah, because I, I imagine, you know, there's the sort of direct evaluation, which, you know, traditionally has been in-person conversation and then could be potentially moving to these questionnaires that, you know, or, or applications that people might use to report how they're feeling. But you could also imagine just, you know, going back to the going back to our prior discussion around social dilemma. But like if, if you knew what someone was doing on their technology all day, like on their phone, on their like what they're typing and writing and, and the tone they're using, you might be able to decipher some of that just passively looking at, you know, how, how they're, how they are or not behaving, you know, based on their typical baseline. 
Exactly. I mean, I know there are companies out there that, that do that with, you know, they can you know, read written words, can listen to you know, tone of voice and that kind of stuff and sort of pick up on those sorts of things, which is fascinating to me. You know, we think we're really good at um, hiding ourselves, but the, the fact is we're, we're giving away tons of information all day long just by the way we talk and what we write. Yeah, I think I think there's a very interesting future for, for that in this space in particular, especially with how important these these issues around behavioral health in general are, are becoming so mainstream. Like, I think there's going to be a lot of entrepreneurs out there trying to use technology and, you know, computer intelligence to try to help help providers figure that out faster or monitor it more effectively. And we see it's a good point you raise, but we see sort of a, a neat intersection. You know, psychology, behavioral health, that kind of stuff is important in its own right, in my mind, because quite honestly, that's what I do. So I want to justify my position. <laughs> I think it has interesting overlaps with a variety of different health situations. So the things that plague, say, a, a rural state like Mississippi are things like metabolic syndrome, heart disease, obesity, teenage pregnancy. You start looking at all those things, and they all have behavioral overlays. So you can't just tell the, the person with high cholesterol you know, stop eating so much, you know, fat food and stop smoking. There's a behavioral component to getting them to stop that. And that is complicated if the person's depressed. And you may argue that, well, they're depressed because they're overweight and they have coronary heart disease. You know, so it's a, it's a cycle. So the intersection between mental health and health, I think, should be erased, honestly. I had a colleague who said to me, David, why is there a Department of Health and a Department of Mental Health in most states? It should all be Department of Health. Uh, because it really does sort of, you know, impact each other. And I think we're starting to see those walls get torn down a little bit for the good of humans. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, well, this has been a, a really, really great conversation. And I appreciate you going down these rabbit holes with me because, you know, it's not a, it's not a space that I focus on very much, you know, mostly on the, the healthcare side. But as you said, there's there's a fine line between these these subjects and th they should really overlap a lot more than they do and so that's why I was really excited to be able to discover some of this on on today's show so yeah th thanks a lot for for sharing and I, I appreciate all the, all that you do both in your work but as uh, also you know just being a teacher and and helping us learn no no and thank you for your time too I, I appreciate the fact that you're interested in this because I think people like you and, and companies like yours are going to be heavily involved in this future world that we're imagining. And I really appreciate the, the conscience that y'all have. Thanks. Yeah, I, I, I hope to be because, you know, we're all just out here trying to make healthcare a little bit better. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, there you have it. That was Dr. David Elkin of UMMC on the Redox podcast. Be sure to subscribe as you won't want to miss out on next week's show with Dama DiPiana of Manatee Health. It's a platform that empowers providers and families through AI-based therapy and collaborative treatment. Dama is a total badass, so you won't want to miss out. Well, this has been Nico Skivaski, and thanks for listening to the Redox Podcast. The the Though the words are true, the state is old.